I am who I am because it's been like Yanjuni. Grandfather, one in a million ancestors. I need to find my space, to find my face in this ancestral embrace that is skin tight. Hi everyone, welcome to Mind Your Margins, a podcast that seeks to foster a space where it's humanly possible to make humanity possible. My name is Michelle Myers, and I'm going to try my best to help us navigate through topics about marginalized identities and prioritizing the perspectives of people who may feel invisible or silenced or ignored or erased. I also want to acknowledge that these discussions are difficult, but I'm hoping that through these conversations, we can claim space for understanding and compassion. So at this time, I want to thank everyone for listening and also for your understanding about this month's episode posting late. My father's hospitalization and illness have been very difficult for me, so I am very grateful for your support. He was finally released a few days ago, and he's doing his best to recover. And I know that everyone would understand if I didn't post an episode this month, but honestly, working on something meaningful for me keeps me from falling apart. So if I can focus on something else, something that gives me purpose, it helps me to stay strong for my dad. So staying busy is good for me as long as I can pace myself and don't get overwhelmed. I also want to thank my friend Quincy Stallworth for sharing information about Mind Your Margins with his listeners. He has a wonderful podcast called Quince Questions, which I've had the honor of being on twice. Quincy interviews incredible performance artists, really delving into their inspirations and motivations, and I hope you'll check it out. Again, it's called Quince Questions. Finally, as an update to my last podcast, which was about anti-Asian violence and the sexual fetishization of Asian and Asian American women, I wanted you all to be aware that Christina Lee's family has closed their GoFundMe and have announced that they will be donating the money raised to various organizations that Christina supported, as well as starting a nonprofit in Christina's name called the Christina Alliance. You can visit the website at thechristinaalliance.org. Myung will also put a link to the website in the episode description. I'll remind you again about the Christina Alliance at the end of this episode. So before I get into today's topic, as I do every episode, I'm going to share a land acknowledgement statement. And I speak this land acknowledgement statement mindfully calling out to the ancestors of the native peoples of this land in the hopes that by honoring them, I also honor my mother, who is now an ancestor, and through them connect to my Korean ancestors and the land of my birth. I ask that you please reflect on the words as I speak them. I acknowledge that the land on which I live and work are the ancestral lands of the Leni Lenape people, whose presence and resilience in New Jersey, Eastern Pennsylvania, and Delaware continue to this day. I recognize that the place where I recorded this podcast also sits on the unceded homeland of the Leni Lenape people. I and my listeners take this opportunity to honor the original caretakers of this land 
and recognize the histories of land theft, violence, erasure, and oppression that has brought ourselves here. We are grateful to be guests in these lands and commit to solidarity and the struggle for indigenous sovereignty. This land acknowledgement reminds us of our connections and indebtedness to the indigenous people of New Jersey, Eastern Pennsylvania, and Delaware, saying their names and learning their histories call their spirits to life. Thank you very much for listening to that land acknowledgement statement. At this time, I actually wanted to share a story about the reason why I intend to start every episode of Mind Your Margins with this land acknowledgement statement, which is also one of the reasons why I wanted to discuss the topic of meaningful allyship today, particularly among communities of color. So a couple of years ago, like maybe three to four years ago, I was listening to a podcast because a friend of mine was involved with it, so I wanted to support. And this particular podcast focused on topics specific to the African-American community, and the hosts, who self-identified as African-American, definitely imagined their listening audience as African-American and spoke directly to them which I was aware of before I started listening, and I completely understood that I truly believe that we all have the right to our own spaces without any concern for anyone but whichever people or community we're talking to. So I knew that this podcast was not for me as a non-Black person. I knew that I basically was a guest in the listening space. And as I said, the main reason why I was listening was just to support my friend. And with everything I watch or read or listen to, I'm always hopeful that I'll learn something meaningful or be inspired in a new way or gain a greater understanding, in this case, about Black identity and the Black experience. But I remember there was this one episode where the hosts were discussing the particular experiences with oppression that Black women endure, which of course is an extremely important topic that doesn't get discussed enough. And one of the hosts happened to bring up Native American women and how they experience oppression and sexualized violence and are being kidnapped and murdered and not much attention is given to it. And I remember feeling hopeful that a connection was being made between Black women and Native women and that this would open up the conversation to how communities of color are subjected to similar forms of oppression. But what happened instead is that the host who brought this up was actually put into a position where they had to apologize and clarify that they weren't saying that Native women were just as oppressed or more oppressed than Black women. They felt they had to clarify that Black women experienced the most oppression and pain, the worst oppression and pain. And I remember in that moment feeling so heartbroken that this kind of oppression Olympics had taken place and that this opportunity for cross-cultural, cross-racial understanding was lost. For real learning and connection within historical and social context that acknowledges how systems of white supremacy in the United States have impacted multiple communities of color, and in particular the overlaps between the horrors and brutality of the American slave system against people of African descent and the experiences of the native peoples of this land whose ancestral homes have been decimated and whole tribal communities have been wiped out through slavery which occurred under the Spanish who were in North America before the English, as well as through disease, genocide, warfare, 
displacement, and urbanization. And as with all systems of racism, we're not talking about just what happened in the distant past. Native women are disappearing right now, are being murdered right now. In contemporary times, genocide has just taken on different forms. Just like slavery hasn't truly been abolished, it's just taken on different forms. It's important to be aware of these situations and dynamics. Like, it's important to be aware that as recent as the 1970s, the U.S. government was secretly sterilizing Native women, pretending to provide them with healthcare services, and then sterilizing them without their knowledge and consent. The government was able to do this under the Family Planning Services and Population Research Act of 1970, and it impacted an estimated 25% or more of childbearing Native women and was also used to perform forced sterilizations on Black and Latin women too through the early 1970s. I'll have Myung put a link to a Time Magazine article published in 2019 about this. So I was deeply disappointed that this type of consciousness building was denied at that moment in the podcast. And it was so sad to me to hear people of color seeming to engage in a process of erasing the oppression and pain that other people of color have experienced. I mean, would it really have taken away from bringing attention to the struggles of black women if a tiny bit of space was made for native women in the discussion? Again, this is not to take anything at all away from the pain that black women have endured and continue to endure. I'm questioning this because for me, it's important to recognize the ways that the structures of white supremacy operate and that part of its purpose is to keep communities of color from uniting together, whether intraracially or cross-racially. Anyway, this whole incident made my heart hurt. I mean, I literally felt like my heart had dropped in my chest and I stopped listening to the podcast after that because it just underscored that this was not meant for me to listen to and I didn't want to be further heartbroken by what the hosts might have to say about Asian Americans or other communities of color. But at the same time, what I heard on that podcast that day is also the very reason why I'm committed to starting every episode of Mind Your Margins with a land acknowledgement statement and making space within my conversations to remind people about the painful history of Native peoples in North America and also to recognize their strength, resilience, and spirit. And I do this in my college classes too. There's this video on YouTube produced by the New York Times called A Conversation with Native Americans on Race. And in the video, one of the Native people being interviewed says, My existence is resistance. And the point they were making was, after all of the ways over the past 500 years that colonialists and settlers and nationalists in North America, from the Spanish to the English to the French, and their modern-day descendants have tried to eradicate Native people's language, culture, and their very existence, the fact that Native peoples have survived, that's a triumph. My existence is resistance. Such a powerful, beautiful statement. And in my own commitment to try to find ways to be in meaningful allyship with other people and communities of color, I want to say that I stand in solidarity with Native peoples in their struggle and their resistance. Just as I stand in solidarity with Black and Brown peoples, Latin peoples, Asian American and Pacific Islanders, the LGBTQ plus community, and other marginalized peoples. 
And I'm also not excluding white people and saying they can't be allies. I believe that white people who are committed to anti-racism and anti-oppression in all forms can and need to be allies too. And I hope to discuss and clarify my views on this more in another episode. And I also want to make it clear that I'm not saying any of this because I want a pat on the back for it. I don't want special attention for it. I'm just trying to explain my own personal attempts to be an ally in a way that hopefully is not performative or self-serving. I'm trying to tell you what in my mind I mean when I discuss meaningful allyship today. And there's no one way to be an ally with meaningful intention. We all have to decide our own level of energy and comfort and capacity. But given the divisiveness that exists and is being exacerbated through pervasive social and racial injustices as well as cultural misunderstandings, I believe this is an extremely important conversation to have with as much transparency and honesty as possible. So before I go any further, I want to make sure that no one misunderstands what I've been saying. I am not singling out black people and saying that they don't make space for the struggles of other communities of color. In that story about the podcast, I was sharing a particular experience that I had and it happened to involve a podcast by and for black people. I want to make it clear that this issue of meaningful allyship, as I want to discuss it, also includes recognizing and calling out instances of anti-blackness in non-black communities of color. As I just said, when talking about meaningful allyship, I believe we have to have a completely honest conversation on all fronts, and that includes ways that various people speak or behave which might be regarded as anti-black, anti-Asian, anti-immigrant, you know, anti anyone who's not like me. So in this commitment to being honest, I want to start by saying in the same video I alluded to earlier, produced by the New York Times called A Conversation with Native Americans on Race, some of the Native people in the video discuss anti-Blackness and how it's impacted mixed-race Black Native peoples. And they also explain the U.S. government's requirement for Native peoples to prove their blood quantum. In other words, prove how indigenous they are or how close to quote-unquote full native they are and how this blood quantum requirement has established a mindset of indigenous quote-unquote purity and a hierarchical status within the native community for people who have a higher percentage of indigenous blood and then in turn causes division within the native community. It's also the U.S. government's way to try to continue to steal land and resources away from Native peoples, even still today. This is not just past history, this is still happening now. And if you take the time to watch this video, which is about six minutes long, I think you'll find it eye-opening. And going back to what I was discussing earlier in the same video, one of the Native women also shares an experience she had where an older white man commented to her, quote, if it were 40 years ago, I could do whatever I want to you. That is some frightening, creepy shit. So if you're interested in watching it and hearing Native peoples talking about these issues from their own perspective, I'll have Myung put a link to the video in the episode description. So I know the more I talk, the more I'm sure many of you are wondering when I'm going to discuss tensions between Asian American and African American communities. And of course, that is the central purpose of today's podcast. And right here at the beginning, I want to say that there's no possible way 
I can discuss every aspect of this issue in just this episode. Today, I'm planning to make some overarching assertions about it, reflect on the pernicious effect that the model minority myth has had in creating divisions between Black and Asian communities, maybe also share a poem, and then this topic will be something that I'll return to in future episodes to discuss a different aspect of it or expand on something that I already talked about. And I think it's important to acknowledge all this because there is no way within this 40-45 minute podcast that I can possibly address and unpack an issue that has its basis in over 500 years of white supremacy, an issue whose very foundations stretches back through over 500 years of structural racism and systems of oppression established all over the world through European colonialism, imperialism, slavery, orientalism, warfare, genocide, land theft, and environmental abuse and exploitation. And that empire building in the name of some European king or queen or country or commonwealth led to the spread of white supremacy and Christian authoritarianism all over the world. And that one of the primary ways to get these systems of oppression to be sustainable is to have indigenous peoples and people of color all over the world internalize the racist lies that reinforce white supremacy so that people of color oppress each other for the benefit of whiteness, whether people of color oppress people within their own communities or in other communities of color. And when we're fighting each other, when we're distracted by our own version of the oppression Olympics, then we don't see all of the ways we're being exploited or all of the resources that are being stolen from us or rerouted to benefit whiteness and the agents of whiteness or those that capitalize off of the political, social, and economic structures of whiteness. And while most of us know this to be true, many of us still fall into the trap anyway. I keep remembering what Myung wrote in her first social media post about Mind Your Margins. She said, quote, it's the responsibility of those who know better to do better, end quote. And her words have resonated so much with me over the past few weeks because truly, what hope is there for us to challenge systems of white supremacy and insist on changes to eliminate structural and systemic racism if we don't acknowledge each other's histories and have compassion for each other's struggles and pain. And that's how you know white supremacy is deeply embedded in our cultural consciousness, how deeply we've been conditioned to accept it when people of color enact systems of oppression and racism against each other, when the various established systems of white supremacy have sustained a social structure where people of color are pitted against each other, both within our communities and between our communities. So I feel that in talking about the tensions that exist between the Black and Asian communities, it's important to acknowledge how this division was manufactured by white power structures. I know some of you may not want to hear a history lesson, but we have to acknowledge what's been erased. We have to dredge up what's been buried because there's a reason why it doesn't get taught. There's a reason why they don't want us to know. And that's because if they control how we learn and what we learn, then they can control us. 
And anything I talk about are things you can look up on your own, and I hope you do. So I want to bring to your attention that going as far back as the mid-19th century, when Chinese immigrants were coming to the West Coast in significant numbers chasing the quote-unquote American dream because they had heard the stories of gold mines and believed the United States was literally quote-unquote gold mountain. By the end of the 19th century, after being exploited through various forms of debt slavery and dealing with racial violence, Chinese immigrants looked for jobs building the western portion of the Transcontinental Railroad. And then they found themselves competing with other immigrants, such as the Irish and Italians, as well as with black people who had been emancipated after the Civil War and who made up the first great migration of black people leaving the South and going north and west to find better jobs and opportunities. And hopefully you can see where I'm going with this. All of these workers were forced to compete for jobs and were deliberately pitted against each other, causing divisions that persisted for years, if not generations. I could start tracing the history of Black-Asian conflict that far back. But for now, I'll just touch on it, encourage you to look into this history more, and then I'll return to it another time in another podcast episode. Because before I run out of time today, I'd like to talk about the model minority myth and how this was intentionally created to sow division between Black and Asian people. So Helen Zia, who is an Asian American journalist and activist, wrote a book titled Asian American Dreams. And in the opening to chapter two, which is called Surrogate Slaves to American Dreamers, Helen Zia comments that, as a child, her American history textbooks effectively taught her that Asians were, quote, invisible or reviled, end quote. She explains further, quote, it was just like the real-life choices we faced, our Asian-American dilemma. Was it better to choose invisibility and a life in the shadows than to be treated as a despised enemy? Or was acquiescent invisibility just another form of self-loathing? End quote. And I wanted to share this quote with you because I feel that Helen Zia's questions here sum up the particular dynamics around the development of the model minority myth. So for those of you who don't know, the model minority myth is a stereotype about Asian Americans which perpetuates an image and belief that Asian American Pacific Islanders, or AAPIs, as a whole are hardworking, studious, smart, passive, quiet, non-threatening, and compliant. Labeling Asians as the model minority originated at a critical juncture in American history, which was the passing of the 1965 Immigration and Naturalization Act, which happened as the civil rights movement was intensifying. And it's so important to know and understand this because the model minority myth was a stereotype created by white people. We Asian people have never asserted ourselves to be the quote-unquote model minority. It was a term created by white people which they purposely used to denigrate African-American people and to instigate divisiveness between AAPI and African-American communities. And if you really look at certain activists during the civil rights time period, both African-American and Asian-American activists, they recognized these divisive tactics and pushed back against them. For example, Asian-American author, playwright, and activist Frank Chin is credited with saying in 1974, quote, Whites love us because we're not black, end quote. 
essentially acknowledging the anti-blackness that drives white people's quote-unquote racist love of Asian Americans as the so-called model minority. And if you're not familiar with Frank Chin, I think it's safe to say he was deeply influenced by the civil rights and cultural nationalist movements of the 1960s and 70s. But I also think it's important to acknowledge that Frank Chin can be regarded as radical and polarizing himself, particularly when you look at his criticism of other Asian American writers, such as Maxine Hong Kingston, Amy Tan, and David Henry Huang. But his views on racism, and in particular how stereotypes function as a method of brainwashing and control, have been very impactful in consciousness building, consciousness raising, across multiple generations of Asian Americans. And he wrote an essay in 1972 with another Asian American writer named Jeffrey Paul Chan titled Racist Love. And in this essay, Frank Chin and Jeffrey Chan say, quote, white racism enforces white supremacy. White supremacy is a system of order and a way of perceiving reality. Its purpose is to keep whites on top and set them free. Colored minorities and white reality are stereotypes. Each racial stereotype comes in two models, the acceptable model and the unacceptable model. The unacceptable, hostile black stud has his acceptable counterpart in the form of step and fetch it. For the savage kill crazy Geronimo, there is Tonto and the Hollywood version of Cochise. For the Mad Dog General Santa Ana, there's the Cisco Kid and Poncho. For Fu Manchu and the Yellow Peril, there is Charlie Chan and his number one son. The unacceptable model is unacceptable because he cannot be controlled by whites. The acceptable model is acceptable because he is tractable. There is racist hate and racist love. If the system works... The stereotypes assigned to the various races are accepted by the races themselves as reality, as fact, and racist love reigns. The minority's reaction to racist policy is acceptable and apparent satisfaction. Order is kept. The world turns without a peep from any non-white. One measure of the excess of white racism is the silence of that race and the amount of white energy necessary to maintain or increase that silence, end quote. I know that quote is very male-centered, but I hope you get the point. I'll have Myung put a link to the essay online if you're interested in reading the entire text, but I think the key point or takeaway from this essay written 50 years ago by these Asian American writers slash activists is that we're all susceptible to the racist stereotypes that are created and perpetuated by systems of white supremacy to the point that the racism becomes invisible because so many of us have been conditioned to believe the stereotypes are true. So going back to 1966, when William Peterson, a sociologist at the University of California, Berkeley, as an agent of whiteness and white supremacy, whether knowingly or unknowingly, wrote an article for the New York Times Magazine called Success Story, Japanese American Style, he compared Asian American and African Americans in ways that have been used over the generations to deny racist structures by praising Asian people for being innately, quote unquote, hardworking and smart and quiet. And on the other side, criticizing African Americans for being the opposite. 
the white racist stereotype of black people as innately quote-unquote lazy, not intelligent, and complaining. I'm going to have Young put a link to an NBC News article from 2016 that talks about how the Smithsonian Asian Pacific American Center wanted to bring awareness to the falsity of the model minority myth and its origins in Peterson's 1966 article, which in turn was based on the 1965 Moynihan Report issued by then Assistant Secretary of Labor Daniel Patrick Moynihan, which blamed black poverty not on racism, or lack of jobs or job opportunities, but on single mother households in the black community. So this report presented to the U.S. government during the middle of the civil rights movement effectively denied systemic racism and blamed black people for their own problems. And then the other agents of whiteness, such as Peterson in his New York Times Magazine article a year later, misrepresented Asian Americans as the quote-unquote model minority to further say black people are at fault for their own situations. So as far as the tension between the Asian community and the black community, it's important to recognize that within white systems of oppression, what drives those racist stereotypes of black people are the opposing stereotypes of Asian people. And it's important to recognize that the positive stereotypes of Asian people are indeed harmful. They're not benign because they are stereotypes that are used to denigrate black people, deny racism, and dehumanize both black people and Asian people. They are two sides of the same coin. And as I've been asserting, all of these stereotypes are lies to further the agenda of systemic racism and white supremacy because they're designed to keep us pitted against each other. And if we know that the stereotypes about our people and our community are lies, why don't we say, hey, then it makes sense that the stereotypes about those people and their community must be lies too. In addition to creating divisiveness, the model minority myth effectively erases AAPI experiences in our understanding of American history, particularly when it comes to moments of meaningful allyship. For example, during the 1960s and 70s, intersectionality among activist movements occurred when the civil rights movement coexisted and coalesced with anti-Vietnam war protests, student movements for ethnic studies programs, the women's rights movement, workers' rights, and anti-poverty economic justice movements, which Dr. King led in the late 1960s up to his assassination. Asian American protest movements, particularly on the West Coast, where larger populations of second, third, and fourth generation Asian Americans lived, found inspiration in the work of the Black Panther Party in Oakland and in the surrounding Bay Area, as well as other African American, Chicano, and Native American movements. And these young Asian Americans wanted to join their voices both in allyship with these other movements, as well as to resist white supremacist ideologies and practices being directed specifically toward Asian and Asian American people. So for example, protests took place on the campuses of San Francisco State College, UC Berkeley, and UCLA, and community leaders in San Francisco's Chinatown led marches to protest living conditions in much of Chinatown's housing units. Yet even though all this is historical fact, this history doesn't get taught, and the model minority myth depicting Asian Americans as passive and compliant is the image that takes precedent 
in most Americans' minds and generates resentment among African Americans who think that Asian Americans have never stood in solidarity with them. And it's going to sound contradictory for me to say what I'm about to say, but Yuri Kochiyama is perhaps the most recognizable Asian American activist of all time, yet people often don't know who she was, have never even heard of her. Her activism was rooted in her and her family's experiences as prisoners of the United States government during World War II in the Japanese American concentration camp located in Jerome, Arkansas. She met her husband, Bill Kochiyama, at that camp, and he went on to fight in the all-Japanese-American 442nd Regimental Combat Unit while his family continued to be held as prisoners of war by the United States. And then after they married, Yuri and Bill Kochiyama had six children, and then they moved to Harlem, where the entire family became very active in various aspects of the civil rights movement. Then, Yuri Kochiyama met and became friends with Malcolm X and his family. She attended Malcolm X's last speech in the Audubon Ballroom on February 21st, 1965, witnessed as he was shot multiple times by gunmen who were in the audience and rushed to the stage to hold his head as he was dying. And there's a photo of her holding his head on her lap that was printed in Time magazine. She took care of the children backstage as Betty Shabazz, Malcolm X's wife, had her last moments with him. Not only did Yuri Kochiyama support Malcolm X's causes, he also supported hers. When Yuri Kochiyama had a group of atomic bomb survivors from Japan visit her home in Harlem in 1964, Malcolm X came to Yuri's home to meet these survivors, saying to them, quote, You have been scarred by the atom bomb. You just saw that we have also been scarred. The bomb that hit us was racism. End quote. This kind of acknowledgement of the intersectionality of acts of white supremacy across communities of color, both nationally and internationally, was so present back then. Yuri Kojiyama passed away in 2014 after a lifelong commitment to social and racial justice and meaningful allyship across communities of color. In an article published on May 19, 2021, May 19 being both Malcolm X and Yuri Kochiyama's birthday, in this article, which was published by The Margins, a digital magazine created by the Asian American Writers Workshop, they interviewed Yuri Kochiyama's granddaughter, Akemi Kochiyama, who is of African American and Japanese American descent, and the article begins with this quote by Yuri Kochiyama. Quote, my priority would be to fight against polarization because this whole society is so polarized. I think there are so many issues that all people of color should come together on and there are forces in this country who want this polarization to take place. End quote. The article goes on to say, and if I didn't say the name of the writer of the article, let me just say now it was written by Jamie A. Swift. Swift the author goes on to identify some of the many acts of allyship that Yuri Kochiyama was involved with. So now I'm quoting from the article. Her activism for Black, Asian, and Third World liberation spanned the gamut. She joined the Young Lords Party, was active in the Harlem community for self-defense, and was an opponent of the Vietnam War. She invited and hosted countless activists in her home, with her political meetings being affectionately known as Grand Central Station, or the Revolutionary Salon. 
Kochiyama was the founder of Asian Americans for Action, an organization with a mission to catalyze Asian American political movement, building in solidarity with Black liberation struggles. In 1977, she was a part of a protest with Puerto Rican activists who took over the Statue of Liberty to raise awareness about Puerto Rican independence, end quote. I'll have Young put a link to this article and interview in the podcast description. And I hope you'll read it and learn more about how activists of color in the 1960s and 70s supported each other, such as Malcolm X and Yuri Kochiyama. And there was no oppression Olympics. They didn't fall for the lies. They were aware of the lies and they knew each other's histories. When Malcolm X met Japanese survivors of the atomic bomb, he talked about how their struggles were similar. He made the connection. His vision of anti-racism was global, as was Dr. King's. They both opposed the Vietnam War. They spoke about being in solidarity with other peoples of color and the poor and disenfranchised all over the world. We don't learn enough about this. In fact, it's to the benefit of white supremacy if we think this kind of cross-racial, cross-cultural allyship never existed. I'll never forget this one time when Kathy and I were being interviewed on a radio station in Philly whose listeners were mostly African-American and someone called in and said to us, I will never accept your issues with our issues because including your issues dilutes the revolution. Well, I would argue that the revolution is against white supremacy, right? So not acknowledging the overlaps, not recognizing the intersectionality of how racism works against and between all communities of color is what actually dilutes the revolution because we're stronger together. We're more powerful when the many can pull together as one. And the agents of white supremacy know that. And by staying divided and promoting division, we are doing the work of white supremacy. I know I'm running out of time, and I know that I didn't talk about other issues like anti-blackness in the Asian American community. I will at some point in the near future. There's just so much to say about this topic of meaningful allyship. But in the time I have remaining, I want to say that the reason why this is so important to me, why I personally have dedicated so much of my own work to building cross-racial and cross-cultural understanding between the Black and Asian communities is because I would not be the person that I am today if it hadn't been for people in my life who were, who are African-American, particularly Black women throughout my life who treated me like a sister or like a daughter, who supported me or mentored me, who accepted me unconditionally when my own family didn't, when other Asian Americans didn't. There are so many people in my life who I love, who identify as Black and African American. They are my family, my people. I don't have time to share more specifics about these experiences and feelings in this podcast, but I will in a future episode. I've also already talked about this publicly in an interview last year with my friend Quincy Stallworth, in an episode of Quinn's Questions. I talk about many of the Black women who had a deep impact on me throughout my life. And because of the friendship and love they gave to me, I simply want to pass it forward. If you're interested, Myung will put a link to the interview in the episode description, but I'll also talk about this more in a future episode. I hope it's okay 
I want to end by sharing a poem. As I said last episode, my love language is my spoken word poetry. And this is a poem that I wrote after the South Philly High Assault in 2009 as a kind of entreaty for Black and Asian communities to come together. The first line in the poem refers to an experience that a young Asian American woman shared with me after a poetry performance Cassie and I did at some college I forget now where. She told me that this happened to her when she was younger and another young woman in her neighborhood who she identified as Black accosted her on the street. The poem is called Take It Back. I dedicate this to the Asian American and African American communities. You dead, Chinese bitch. Homicidal words. Words unleashed and too late to take back and I wonder, is this the point where hatred begins? The lightning rod that drives people to patch together from inanimate letters a living monster of hurtful utterances, vengeful and uncontrollable. Frankenstein words jolted to life with a destructive fury that cannot be taken back. And I know why she thrusts these burning words towards me, this young Asian-American woman, after one of my poetry performances. She told me because she thinks I'm the angry one, ready to absorb flaming injustices into my heart and spitfire them into ignitable words, riot words, avenging words, maybe words that will find their way into another pissed-off poem that would add another seething limb to the monstrosity that has devolved into what we know to be Asian-Black relations in Philly, in LA, in DC, and everywhere else in between what we call urban America. But I cannot speak to life explosive words that I cannot take back, and that would rip chasms between communities of color, chasms which become open graves for words that fall like casualties of war at our feet, and so I say instead, let's take it back. Let's take it back because we have a common struggle. We go back with it, though blank spaces in white history books have buried it along with the bodies that give evidence to it. Right now, I'm going to start the process of digging them out and taking them back because we go back. We go back to aching bodies, laboring under the weight of trains tracking both transcontinental and underground routes, our dreams riding on elusive promises of freedom. We go back to exhausted bodies bending over a stretch of earth on plantations in Hawaii, the West Coast, and the South, our fingers caressing dormant seeds filled with hope. We go back to expendable bodies withering in Japanese-American concentration camps and Tuskegee clinics, our spirits seeking threads of equality to grasp. We go back to raped bodies under white slave owners and invading U.S. soldiers, our hearts closed tightly to protect our love, so maybe, if we survive, we can find it again and pass it on to our children. We go back to murdered bodies waiting for police brutality to be punished as modern-day lynchings, our hopes refusing to accept the persistent reality of injustice. Bodies, and there, more bodies, and see here, even more bodies. There are so many more bodies to dig out. It's too much for one person to do alone. Do you get what I'm saying? Because it's time for us to reclaim our bodies and take ourselves back. It's time for us to realize 
that just because we don't know each other's struggles doesn't mean they don't exist. It's time to stop loading our words to win some sort of oppression Olympics. Meanwhile, filling the space between us with dead bodies that pile up, blocking the sunshine and choking our collective spirits. I stand before you. I'm a witness. And I am also alone over here, feeling like no matter how much I unpack these hurtful words and refill them with blessed earth, hoping that somehow we will find a way to plant the unifying seeds which will cultivate community building, that what I say and what I do is not enough. And I am at a loss. I don't know how I can find the words both urgent and vulnerable enough to bring us together. I can't find the words to make you see that my struggle is your struggle is our struggle that we are a people you are all my people i can't find the words for that so some of you have to help me take us back because i can't love all my people enough through poems the words do not have the fingers the hands the arms the embrace to make you feel like everything is going to be okay to make you believe that this can be a time of healing Help me take us back because I cannot make the words bleed enough, weep enough, hug enough, laugh enough, kiss enough, hope enough, forgive enough. Help me take back the words, you dead Chinese bitch, and replace them with, let's be friends. Help me take us back by blowing word kisses, which glide like the wind from the backs of butterfly wings, fluttering with the urgency of prayer and breath through words with the power to take you back. Will you help me take us back? Come back with me through community, friendship, understanding, unity. Come back, my people. Let's take it back to one love and peace. Thank you very much for spending this time with me and sharing space. In my next episode of Mind Your Margins, which should post by the end of May, our schedule is a bit off because of my father's hospitalization. I plan to celebrate Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month by sharing stories about the organizations and people who have inspired me as an Asian American woman, including the Asian Arts Initiative in Philadelphia various spoken word poets and performance artists, and books I've read, basically giving them their flowers. I hope you'll join me for that episode. As a reminder, Myung will post links in the episode description to the video, A Conversation with Native Americans on Race, the Time Magazine article about forced sterilizations of Native women, the links to Frank Chin and Jeffrey Paul Chan's essay, Racist Love, information about the model minority myth, the article about Yuri Kochiyama that includes an interview with her granddaughter about Yuri Kochiyama's legacy of activism and allyship, and the interview I did on the podcast Quinn's Questions where I talk about my commitment to meaningful allyship and the Black women who have had a significant impact on my life. I also wanted to remind you that Christina Lee's family has closed their GoFundMe page for Christina's Memorial Fund and announced they will be donating the money raised as well as starting a nonprofit in Christina's name called the Christina Alliance. The link to the website for the Christina Alliance will also be in the episode description. I hope that you will consider supporting. Finally, you can reach out to me via email at mindyourmargins at gmail.com and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next time, please be mindful of yourself and mindful of others. 
take good care. I am boy and husband, like young Julie, grandfather, one of the million ancestors. I need the bar on my face, the bar on my face in this ancestral embrace that is skin tight, but my skin fits me just Strong.